Yugoslavia, 1992. World War II never really ended in Yugoslavia. Six territories held up tenuously by the power of the Soviet Union comprised the region, a cobbling together of religious and ethnic groups in Eastern Europe, all divided along borders shaped in the aftermath of conflict. One of the six states, Serbia, began to embrace nationalist ideologies, building up support by pointing to the weakening influence of the Communist Party. The other states did not agree with their consolidation of power, mostly because President Slobodan Milosevic was a giant racist with violent ambitions. This did not bode well for the former Ottoman-ruled province of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was made up of Muslims, ethnic Croatians, and Serbs, all who had managed to keep a consistent, if not shaky, peace. Milosevic did what any would-be genocidal maniacs lying in wait do— fuel racial tensions. The response of the other states was to elect leadership that would match his nationalism, ideas that parroted the first two world wars, but on a smaller scale. Slovenia and Croatia decided to declare themselves independent of a Yugoslavian confederacy, which led to the Ten-Day War. Though the conflict resolved itself for a time, the worst was yet to come. The United Nations tried to intervene in the political turmoil, but this escalated events further. In 1991, Croatia invaded Bosnia. Alliances between the states along ethnic lines were drawn. Muslims in particular were targeted. The independent state of Bosnia and Herzegovina was soon formed in government. Milosevic responded to this by planning to attack. In the midst of the chaos, the Serbs inside Bosnia tried to form their own republic. Independence was put to referendum, and during this period, an attack on a wedding set off a chain of events that would spiral into the Bosnian War and the ensuing genocide. At the end of it all, 8,372 Bosniaks would be massacred by Serb forces, leading to the eventual arrest and capture of Slobodan Milosevic. He was charged with war crimes and inciting genocide by the International Tribunal, but he died in prison at The Hague while awaiting charges. The end of the conflict resulted in the breakup of the Yugoslav state into the nations of Montenegro, Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Slovenia, and, most recently, North Macedonia. The wars resulted in the displacement of 2.4 million refugees and an additional 2 million internally displaced persons, many of whom found very little acceptance or welcome in neighboring European countries. But from the ashes of this terrible war, something unusual was born. Fast forward to April 15th, 2007. Dubai, United Arab Emirates, the playground of the rich, an oasis of excess and luxury in one of the world's poorest regions, with resorts that cater explicitly to the tastes of the world elite. The Wafi Mall is no exception to this rule. It is a veritable retail city sporting over 200 storefronts, most of them geared towards high-end luxury experiences. If the words retail city don't finally illustrate the level of Hunger Games capital aesthetic here on display, just know that the complex itself is designed to resemble ancient Egypt, with a literal replica pyramid hotel smack dab in the middle. Around 9.16 p.m. on April 15th, Mall patrons were simply going about and doing some late-night shopping when all of a sudden, 
two very expensive and very loud Audi A8s crashed through the mall's glass facade. The cars accelerated into the mall and smashed into the storefront at the House of Graff's jewelry boutique. A gang of black-clad individuals wearing balaclavas and carrying some very big guns proceeded to raid the store, scattering its panic-staffed in all directions. Within seconds, the robbers scored over $14 million in jewelry and watches before fleeing the scene in their getaway vehicles, pulling straight out of the gaping hole in the mall that they had left in their very Kool-Aid man-style break-in. Believe it or not, the Graf's heist was not an isolated incident. Since the mid-90s, similar flamboyant and dramatic robberies netting massive payouts have been occurring all around the world. It is believed that these audacious heists are orchestrated by several individual groups, all tied to the same massive network. They themselves go by no name, but to those in the international community who hunt them, they are known as the Pink Panthers. is a jewelry company known in the universe of high-stakes diamond trading, that is, to pride themselves on ethically sourced diamonds, and their watches and jewelry are known to be both the most high-quality and highly-priced pieces in the world. In other words, if you were a jewel thief, this is who you'd want to steal from. But it's the 2000s. The days of cat burglars sneaking into expensive boutiques, a very romantic criminal notion indeed, are long gone, thanks to the advent of high-security doors, bulletproof glass, infrared alarms, enhanced security cameras, and just about everything to make the Impossible Missions Task Force apoplectic. Which is why in May 2003, international justice authorities took notice when a break-in at Graff's Jewelries on Bond Street in London resulted in the loss of over 47 items of immense worth. It was the most expensive diamond heist in British history, with a price tag of 23 million pounds. But that's not the only part of this incident that raised eyebrows. When staff noticed a customer wearing a very fake headpiece, they initially didn't react with much suspicion, believe it or not. You see, it's actually relatively common for celebrities to don wigs or even disguises in public as to not draw a crowd. But celebrities, in England anyway, aren't usually likely to be packing heat. And so when the weirdos in the strange headwear turned their .357 magnums on the staff, something was definitely amiss. A similar incident occurred only a few years earlier in France, in 2001. The setting was the seaside resort town of Biarritz, which I've actually been to and got lost on a high school trip, but that's a story for another time. Outside a wealthy boutique, a team of municipal workers went about repainting a public bench before adding a wet paint sign as a courtesy. Only these weren't tradesmen employed by the local municipality. 
They were the thieves in disguise, whose antics had prevented people from getting too close while they went about casing and robbing the nearby jewelry store right across the street from the bench. 2005, Ginza, Japan, the Soho of Tokyo. This Supo Diamant Couture Maki was not your average diamond boutique. It called home to quite possibly the most priceless diamond necklace of all time. Estimated at $31 million at the time it was put on display, the Comtesse de Vendôme consisted of 116 diamonds, with a centerpiece 125 carat. On March 25, 2005, a Western businessman who looked like he had cash to spare entered the boutique and asked to see the necklace. He left and later came back with a friend who pepper sprayed the store attendant while his accomplice made away with the Comtesse. When the clerk was able to see again, poor guy, he reported to Tokyo Metropolitan Police that the culprits wore ridiculous wigs and sunglasses during the heist the same year, something similar occurred in Saint-Tropez. The jewel of the French Riviera was no place for people on a budget, as this resort town has long been the vacation destination with those with cash and plenty of it. This included the nouveau riche and, uh, to put it bluntly, Euro trash, certain individuals with little taste and large pockets who are known to flaunt their jewelry and fashion. So it was nothing out of the ordinary when several gentlemen dressed in gaudy floral summer shirts entered a local jeweler's. I never be caught dead in florals personally, but hey, I'm not an international criminal yet. And you guessed it, these men in the particularly loud shirts did not leave without a couple million dollars worth of gemstones in their pocket. Their getaway vehicle of choice was, naturally, a couple of speedboats. Slowly, a pattern was emerging all over the world, and not just because the perpetrators were particularly subtle about their crimes. As investigations proceeded, authorities in the UK, as well as abroad, began to connect the dots between various high-stakes diamond heists happening on an international stage. 90% of the 2003 Graffs Hall would forever elude authorities. Most likely, it ended up on the black market or the diamonds were recut and sold. This same could probably be said of the unfortunate Comtesse de Vendôme necklace, which was probably broken apart and sold on the black market. The mastermind behind these crimes, if there was one individual in particular, was never found. However, arrests were made. The jig was up for Milan Jovatek when the investigator searching his flat discovered a $500,000 blue diamond ring in a very unlikely hiding spot. Well, Unlikely if you're not familiar with a certain cinematic bumbling detective named Inspector Clouseau, played expertly by Peter Sellers. In this film, as in real life, the eponymous diamond was hidden in a jar of face cream. Jovatek's girlfriend's face cream, to be specific. I bet she was pissed. Based on Jovatek's curious method of would-be smuggling, detectives coined the name Pink Panther Diamond Heists. Or more informally, the Pink Panthers. After the 2005 heist in Ginza, former Yugoslavian national Alexander Rudolov... Okay, we're just going to have to bear with these because I am not well-versed in Eastern European languages. Alexander Rudolovich, Sneslana Panachovich, as well as a Scottish woman named Dorothy Fasola, were arrested in conjunction with the crime. Fasola admitted to being the brains behind the operation, Panachovich was the getaway driver, and Rudolovich and... Rasevich, the men on the ground. 
The team of thieves alleged that it was none other than the store owner himself who had commissioned the heist as part of an insurance scheme. A story that, to the authorities, seemed as wet as a diamond ring in a jar of Pond's cold cream. But one thing was clear. This group of individuals was part of something a whole lot bigger than one or two clever robberies. This was a network of international personalities operating among different cells, more akin to a group of terrorist cabals and thieves. But aside from the loss of billions upon millions of dollars worth of assets for people who could afford to lose that much money anyway, the crimes of the Pink Panthers were relatively, well, victimless. Due to that, as well as the highly stylized and frankly funny nature of the crimes, the Pink Panthers took on a roguish celebrity status. But the question in everyone's minds, besides where the hell are those diamonds at, was who was behind something of this magnitude? The Ginza heist resulted in one of the first major breakthroughs into the identity behind the Panthers. It became clear that there was a connection between the persons involved and the former nations of Yugoslavia. As Interpol began to pool its resources, they started flagging several different persons of interest, one of whom was a man who went by the names Vinko Osmicic, Vinko Tomic, or Juro Markalic. Whoever he is, the gentleman, now believed to be in his 60s, was responsible for five-finger discounting a Chelsea art fair, netting him $2 million worth of diamond rings. He's also believed to have planned an operation on the Monte Carlo Casino in 2009. His first crime, however, was the theft of eight diamond watches from a, from a boutique in Honolulu, Hawaii, in 1994. But this wasn't just a robbery. It was an investment. You see, a diamond watch allowed him to enter luxury shops without much notice. Just another rich man browsing for a little souvenir for his spouse. Appearances, as we know, can be deceiving. In 2002, at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas, the man known as Osmachik pulled off one of the greatest thefts of all time, the Millennium Necklace. The Millennium was a 96-carat platinum monstrosity of 2,000 Russian diamonds and Caribbean black coral that hung on display at the Bernard K. Passman Gallery. Osmachik and his accomplices swept in and pulled off a beautifully choreographed robbery. While the big man charmed and distracted the staff, his accomplices opened the case and left the gallery with workers not even immediately noticing that the necklace was gone, and the gentleman with it. The police found no fingerprints, and the thieves had expertly avoided the four security cameras that would have pinpointed their exit. It was a masterful job, and all done under four minutes, no less. A passport at a hotel linked detectives to a false identity, and over time, the man known as Osmachik was eventually caught and tried for a number of heists. His jail sentences never seemed to stick, as he was usually out within a year's time. He was a slick customer, and one that always had a plausible alibi or would conveniently disappear before he was apprehended, only to show up in another state or country. He claimed that he was a cook who hardly made a living, which didn't seem to explain how he could afford such pricey lawyers. But for all of his many lies, Osmachik may have revealed a truth about his origins, as well as those of the mysterious Pink Panthers as a whole. 
During his 2006 trial, Osmachik told the court that he had acted out of desperation and not greed. He was the survivor of a 1992 attack on his village in Bosnia and went on to become a soldier in order to provide for his family. When the war had ended and Osmachik found himself on a strange side of history, he became a refugee that had committed crimes out of a mixture of both survival and of vengeance. This murky origin story is supported by journalists who have managed to hold conversations with individuals connected with the Pink Panther crimes. As one informant put it, the Pink Panthers were children of a country that does not exist anymore. They don't give a f***. That's a real quote. And well, it makes sense. When the world watches your villages burn and the rest of Europe turns you away from seeking refuge, then it stands to reason you might hold a grudge. If your background was in the military and espionage, you'd also put your skills to good use the best way you could. And so the Pink Panthers were born out of the ruin of the Balkan Wars. Osmachik may or may not have been a ringleader, and his whereabouts are currently unknown. After his team was caught casing the outside of the famous Monte Carlo Casino, and after he was considered a top suspect in a robbery at the Chelsea Art Fair in London, the Panther went on the lam, where he remains. Another major suspect is one of Interpol's most wanted fugitives, Dragan Michik, largely believed to be one of the senior leaders of the international thieving ring. In the early part of the 20-teens, yes, that's what we're calling it now, tell your friends, Michik was busted out of jail in a glorious reign of return gunfire. It's like something out of an Ocean's Eleven film. He's not the only one to make a break for it either. A female member of the Panthers was said to have knocked out a guard, taken her keys, and escaped. Other members were broken out of prison when affiliates on the outdoors rammed into the jail with a van and used ladders to virtually break into the prison to rescue their captive buddies. They then set the van on fire and fled near the French-Swiss border. Nobody has seen them since. Now, you'd think the most prolific members of a criminal ring might lay low for a while, but not the Panthers. And this is when you find out that this group of thieves might actually had a major hand in many of the other lost treasures that Relic has covered. You may have heard of an individual named Kim Kardashian West, who experienced a terrifying and strange robbery in Paris sometime in 2016. After the incident occurred, an ex-Panther named Palve Punch Stanmirovich was interviewed by the Daily Beast and asked his thoughts on the crime. Now, that name, Stanmirovich, might sound familiar to you if you've been listening to Relic since episode three, when I covered the theft of Tucker's cross from Bermuda. Punch's father, Vojislav, was Mr. Stan the criminal mastermind behind the Villa Vizcaya heist in Miami, and is often suspected as being behind the theft of the golden emerald-studded cross as well. Stanimirovich once theorized that the Panthers might be connected to the Kardashian robbery as masterminded by Dragan Michik, but the real thieves were later caught, and there does not seem to be any connection to the multinational network. Thing is, it's hard to prove who is and who is not a member. For one, the Pink Panthers don't actually call themselves that, and they also have no true leaders or broad cooperation. Second, captured members aren't liable to squeal on their companions, and they don't tend to stay behind bars for too long anyway.
There is no sign that the Panthers, or whoever they call themselves, will be stopping their crimes anytime soon. In 2018, jewels from the collection of a Mughal Maharaja were on display at the Doge's Palace in St. Mark's Square in Venice, Italy. Four men were later implicated and arrested for successfully stealing a gem-encrusted brooch and a pair of earrings belonging to a wealthy guitar prince. It is unknown if the treasures were ever recovered. In many instances of the Panthers' crimes, they aren't. With such a flair for the dramatic, the lack of victims, and, well, the fact that they're just able to pull off such crazy heists, it almost makes you want to root for the Panthers. What they do is nothing short of revenge and greed on a grand scale. Stealing from the rich, yes, but not necessarily for the betterment of the people. The reality is that what may have started out as a misguided but noble endeavor has just turned into crime for profit, though they do seem to leave major works of art alone. You know, then again, with the way the world is going, maybe what they do isn't so bad after all. Hmm, trading podcasting for a life as a high-stake jewel thief. Do you think I'd look good in florals? Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you want to steal my heart, you can leave a solid review or five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. We also have a pretty robust series of minisodes going on on Patreon, something a bit out of the ordinary, so definitely check us out there as well. That would be patreon.com slash relic. Next time... Buried treasure is perhaps the most classical kind of treasure. Somewhere near Costa Rica is an island with a killer reputation involving pirates, conspiracy, and one of the most frequently sought troves in South America. In next episode, we're going to talk about it. The adventure continues.